Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of Politics with a P Plater. My name's Alessandro Rossini, and today I'm joined by the Vic Greens leader, Samantha Ratnam. Uh, she's been serving in the Victorian Parliament since 2017, was re-elected in 2018, and is currently in the Legislative Council. Samantha, welcome to Politics with a P Plater. Hi, Al. It's great to be talking to you. <laughs> We have something in common. We both share the same personal trainer. We do, Al. <laughs> <laughs> now, has Daniel made you do the uh, the sled push yet? Oh, yes. I've heard about the sled push stories. Yes, I'm, I'm on the sled now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what. I think um, I never made an investment in Gatorade before that, but <laughs> afterwards I think I needed it because... That is a good investment. That's a very good investment. And look, um, I think uh, both of us traversing politics and working in this political world, um, doing a bit of a workout in the gym every so often can really help you keep your energy level up for this mm. kind of work I say absolutely now before I get into the policy and the politics and the federal election and the state election coming up I want to talk to you a bit about your story so you're, you came to Australia from uh, Sri Lanka at 11 years old um, following the civil war I'm under I understand tell me what was it like to pack up your life and move to Australia um, during that turbulent period. And the follow-up question to that is, why did your family pick Australia out of all the countries in the world? So we ended up in Melbourne via Canada, actually, but it's a story of many migrants who often have to um, move to a few places before they find their eventual home. And you're right, we left Sri Lanka because of the civil war. I'm from a Tamil ethnic background and hundreds um, and thousands of Tamils had to leave around that time at the end of the 80s. Um, Canada was the first place we were able to gain entry to, so we arrived there. But after a year and a half, we found ourselves in Melbourne with much closer family here and for a number of different reasons. Um, my mum particularly really wanted to be in Australia. Her brother was going to be living here. My dad had a brother here as well. Uh, you know, moving three continents uh, within a space of two years. I think there was five schools we changed within that two-year time frame. It's a lot of upheaval and change. As a child, I think, though, you adapt much more quickly. Um, so for us, it was kind of exciting and it was nice to be in new places. But we really got to know about I think it really made me get interested in politics in a weird sort of way. I didn't realise I was getting interested in politics, but the types of places that we ended up in really shaped how I thought about what were good neighbourhoods and communities. So there were times when we moved to places, because we moved to so many places within a short space of time, if you moved to a place where the school was nearby and you could walk to school because your parents are you know, working long hours, which is a common migrant story as well, where there were library and community facilities that you could keep yourself entertained after school while your parents were still working, those places we found we made friends much more quickly. You felt like you belonged and you could create a home much more quickly. And then when you moved to places where it was much harder to get around as a kid, the public transport wasn't good, the facilities were really, really far away, getting to school was even very, very difficult, you felt much more isolated. And in those places, and we moved to a number of those too, you felt like you retreated, you know, watching TV at home, my siblings and I, waiting for our parents to come home after their long day at work. So it made me really interested in what makes a good community and the decision makers, our politicians often make at local government, for example, or state level, that mean that you have those facilities and services available to everyone. That means that you can build a life from scratch, which is what we did. We arrived here with five suitcases and nothing much really else, but we were able to build a life thanks to particularly the public services that were available to us, great quality public education, 
public health care, universities that were accessible to us and great community facilities meant that we could start a life in Australia. Was the plan always, I guess, to get into local government and then make it, use it as a bridge to get into either federal politics, I know you ran in wills, um, or state politics, or um, was it just something that you're passionate about at a local level? Well, there actually wasn't a plan about politics. I am a, so I'm a social worker by training and I have worked in the field for over 15 years and absolutely loved that work. So I think that experience of migration and having to leave a war-torn country and the fact that we talked about politics a lot at home because it was really important. We realised from an early age that politics actually makes a really big difference to your life and for us the difference, difference between war and peace as well. So I think we were always attuned to realising just how important politics was but I actually didn't think it was a system that somebody like me could access. I never thought I could be an elected representative when we arrived here 30 years ago. I'm sure my parents didn't think that one of their kids could be in a parliament either. Um, but what happened was that I got uh, was loving my social work career. I got really upset about some of the decisions that were being made uh, by our politicians about 10 years ago, particularly around the environment and climate change. I started to realise just what an important issue it was and we had to take action. I came from the social justice field, but I realised if we don't solve the climate issues, we have no future. And I wanted to get more involved. So I, that's when I joined the Greens, still with no plan to get formally involved in you know, running for parliament or local government. But once I joined with the Greens, I really felt like I had met a group of people who I really connected with and I felt more energised and more optimistic about taking part. And I just got more and more involved and three years later, um, local government elections were coming up. I was encouraged to put my hand up. I knew a bit about what local government was doing because we had some Greens councillors already at that time in our local branch. And I realised they were making really significant decisions that were changing our community. And then pennies really started to drop for me and I realised that my experiences migrating as a kid and recognising the differences between the services we had access to when we moved to different neighbourhoods were the decisions made by local government. Mm -hmm. So then I thought oh, I'd really like to put my hand up and represent the Greens at local government. That's when it started. Um, was honoured to be elected the mayor a few years later. Then the opportunity to run for federal parliament kept up, came up and that was a life-changing experience because I didn't realise that someone like me, a migrant to this country, could run for our federal parliament. Um, but I've just become more and more encouraged and optimistic about getting involved in the system, which surprises a lot of people because people say to me, don't you become more cynical and hostile once you get involved? But actually, I've had the re reverse experience, which is the more I get involved, I realise that every everyone, we all should get involved and help change the system if we don't like what we see. We're going to head into policy now. So I'm interested to hear what you what you have to say. So you mentioned briefly before about, I guess, the civil war in Sri Lanka and, and I guess how devastating um, that has been both as a country, as for the country, but also on a personal level too. Um, now, well, I want to get into defence. So recently, Green Senator um, Jordan Steele said, and I'm quoting him here, I don't see China as a milita military threat to Australia, end quote. Um, I recently spoke with Piers Mitchum, the Greens candidate for the seat of Kuyong, and he said he can't see any evidence of China being a threat either. Now, I want to ask you, we've got warships circumnavigating the coast of Australia, the western coast of Australia at the moment. We've got a deal with the Solomon Islands. Um, we've got the highest levels of foreign interference in our country's history. Is now the time uh, to cut defence spending to 1.5% um, or should we be more heavily investing in, in defence capabilities? Uh, in terms of that question, I mean, I would defer to my federal colleagues who have made those recent comments. Um, you know, I sit at the, sit at the parl state parliamentary level. That being said, one of the core pillars to the Greens is peace and non-violence. It's one of the reasons that I was attracted 
um, to joining the Greens, particularly because I had a background and experience of what it was like to grow up with war. So we are very deeply committed to peace building activities, to promoting non-violence, to promoting negotiation and collaboration. And, you know, that happens at a community level, but that also happens at a diplomatic and international level. And I think you'd find that um, the comments my federal colleagues who, um, you know, take carriage of this policy area for the Greens um, is replicated and referred to in their comments as well. Like we take the... Um, the geopolitical situation and security situations very, very seriously. But one thing that the Greens have been talking about for many years is about how we prioritise our spending. So yes, there needs to be spending in you know all areas of our economy. But if you th- if you think about how much we've spent, for example, in areas of defence at times, at the cost of, for example ensuring that everyone has a safe and secure and affordable home, a roof over their heads with a homelessness crisis in our country. We have a climate and environment that's in absolute peril. (laughs) We've just had a Victorian parliamentary inquiry into biodiversity and extinction in Victoria alone, and the findings were just damning. So there's so many areas that we should be prioritising to look after people and our planet, and of course to keep us safe. But one of the things the Greens have been able to offer the policy debate is to think about where our priorities are and how we make sure we look after people, we put the health of our climate and planet front and centre of everything that we're doing. And yes, we will need to do things to keep us safe, but we should also be promoting peace and non-violence building activities. And it can't always be um, the kind of aggressive tactics that we have, you know, occupied for hundreds of years that have led to so many wars at the cost of, you know, millions of people's lives. You, um, you touched on climate change very briefly in that question there, so I want to talk to you about climate change. Um, now, it's a big issue that many Australians are concerned about. Um, a 2020 poll conducted by the Lowy Institute on Climate Change made the following findings. It said that 60% of Australians say that global warming is a serious and pressing problem. 74% say that the benefits of taking further action on climate change will outweigh the costs. The Business Council of Australia is calling for significant reforms such as carbon pollution reduction scheme, emissions inten- intensity scheme, clean energy target and a national energy guarantee. Tell me, Labor has accused the government of not having a plan to mitigate the effects of climate change, but then on the other end they've also criticised the Greens for having an uncosted and untested plan as well. Tell me, what is your response to the Labor Party who uh, are spinning this rhetoric? The Greens have had costed policies for a decade or more now. Every election we take costed policies. I know the other parties try to relegate us um, and spread misinformation, quite frankly, about um, the detailed policy work that we do um, and we take you know really detailed costed policies to every election to our federal and state elections so that's a misnomer that we haven't got those things costed in fact we are often the ones offering the PBO costings out to the for the policy debate um, and in terms of climate action unfortunately both the major parties Labour and Liberal have just not come to the table and not done enough which is one of the reasons we are staring down the barrel of a greater than 1.5 degree uh, global temperature increase that we're already seeing the impacts of, more extreme uh, weather events happening right across the world, happening right across Australia right now with floods in the north of Australia as well, on the east coast of Australia. Um, Climate change is now upon us. There are still things that we can do to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. And it's really important to have parties like the Greens talking about the action that we can take 
for example, in Victoria, we are currently doing an inquiry into how we can get to 100% renewable energy by 2030. The Labor government's done some good things on renewable energy, but they've really got to think about their plan beyond coal and gas, which they still continue to mine and explore for and burn at the cost of our climate. They need to have a plan to get out of coal and gas uh, if you want to be serious about taking action on climate change. And both the Labor and Liberal parties are stone cold silent on that matter. What's uh, what's your plan, I guess, at a state level to make that transition? So obviously, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the Federal Parliamentary Greens Party have the policy to phase out coal by 2030, so that's yep. eight years away. Yep. Um, does the state, does your state branch that you lead, does it have a, a consistent policy with that? And if you do, what is like, what is your plan? How are you going to get there? Uh, yes, our plan is for 100% renewable energy by 2030, so that by that time we'll be using... Um, energy from renewable energy sources and the parliamentary inquiry has been really powerful in showing us how that can be possible. So we've heard from a range of experts of what the barriers are now to um, getting that accelerated uptake of renewables and actually the thing they're telling us is um, actually the infrastructure to get the renewable energy which the market is actually delivering at a quite a pace you know wind and solar projects are really coming onto the market um, the sector is ready to go but often the infrastructure to get the energy from where it's uh, produced to households and businesses that hasn't quite been built yet. So the transmission and the distribution network. So we need um, more investment in that. You need publicly owned renewable energy as well. You know, we've privatised our energy distribution, our whole energy system. And so we've got these private companies who are profiting from energy generation and distribution, passing on the cost to consumers. And it leads to these kind of really um, unfortunate conversations about energy just talked about in price terms when actually we know you get more renewables into the into the grid you will reduce the uh, cost pressure on energy you'll actually reduce people's power bills and it's great for our planet so we are doing everything that we can to make sure that we accelerate towards 100 percent renewable energy and in victoria we absolutely can we just need the government commitment and courage to do so you're the leader of the Victorian Greens at a state level. Tell me, what's it like running a political party, um, being the leader of a political party, and I guess being the person who has to make a lot of the decisions? Um, and also, I'm interested to hear, is there a, a strong connection between the Victorian Greens and the Federal Greens? For instance, do you take um, policy directions from the Federal Greens and implement them at a state level, or are you entirely independent on what your vision is for Greens in Victoria? We work together very closely at all levels of the Greens, whether it's federal, state or local. Um, I'm very thankful to be part of a party that really values collaboration. You know, we have a consensus decision making model. So what that does is we try to reach agreement, you know, before going to votes and, um, you know, leaving a whole bunch of people um, who are unhappy with the decision. We work really hard to make sure that as many people are happy with the decisions that we make on policy or process or whatever that is before us. So that's the culture of the party and that's what I really enjoyed and um, hope to help strengthen within the party as well. So a lot of the decisions are shared actually, you know, we're making those decisions together as a party. Uh, we, we pride ourselves in the fact that our membership get to have the say on the really important matters and as elected representatives when you're pre-selected or elected to a, a level of government you are there representing your um, members of your party you're representing your constituents um, so it's a, 
it's, you know, it's a privileged position to be able to do that, but I do everything that I can to consult as much as possible. So I'm not making decisions unilaterally. I'm making them also alongside my uh, Greens colleagues in the parliament as well. So we work very closely together and all our policies are consistent with each other. So for example, in terms of housing, it's a priority both for the federal uh, Greens and it's a priority for the state Greens as well. So in terms of our policies that we announce, um, we are thinking about how we can work at both levels to see um, more public housing be, being built. Now, you've been in the parliament since 2017. Yeah. Um, you were, um, before that, as I said, in local council as well. Do you have a funny or interesting story from your time in parliament that you think our listeners would be interested in hearing? Well, state parliament is a very interesting place. I know a lot of people probably don't follow what's happening there, but it's very interesting. I you know, uh, encourage everyone to tune into the live Hansard broadcast <laughs> when parliament's sitting. Uh, but my, one of my first, it's, we can call this a baptism of fire into the politics of um, parliaments. I'd just been there for a couple of months, I think. It was towards the end of that first year. So I was quite new and um, kind of learning the ropes as well. Um, and we got into quite a heated debate in the chamber and I was... Um, um, speaking about uh, the Liberal Party at the time, one of their senators had made a comment about women's participation in politics and I was quite unhappy about it, so I was speaking out about it. And one of their colleagues in the Liberal Party was unhappy me, about me talking about this. So starting to interject, you'll hear all this heckling when you look at parliaments. You're probably wondering why people are yelling at each other. I often think it's because they get bored, so they just start talking amongst each other. <laughs> it feels like a bit of a habit that started. And so they started heckling and one of the MPs called me a pig. Now she wasn't on the mic, so she was sitting down, but I could hear her, but it wasn't picked up on the mic. And so I got up and I called a point of order because it was a really derogatory comment and um, not in the spirit of how we should be conducting debates. And I called a point of order and I asked the president to make a ruling on whether that was parliamentary language. Um, and because of that, a debate then started about what had happened. And it happened to be that the media picked up on that story. So this was me, you know, a couple of months into parliament. And this was the story of the day. The news was sending live crosses to the front of parliament to talk about what was happening in the Piggate scandal and whether an apology had been um, offered and whether it had been retracted, whether I'd accepted the apology. So that was my introduction. And I think there was a cartoon even uh, that made it to the paper based on the Piggate incident. But uh, there was my lesson in uh, Victorian politics, um, yeah, 101 essentially <laughs> um, one of my favorite segments on the show is called questions without notice now I'm sure you're very familiar with them because you yes. ask questions in the parliament yes um, and my question today is going to be about COVID-19 so Victorians especially have had a really really tough couple of years when it comes to COVID-19 in our country the state parliament recently passed pandemic legislation which allows the Premier or the Health Minister to make a pandemic declaration without having to accept the advice of the Chief Health Officer, um, a policy which I said earlier the Greens supported. Um, the Victorian Bar Association said that the amendments made in the Pandemic Management Bill do not go far enough to protect the rule of law um, and especially making reference to the fact that the only criteria um, that is needed to be fulfilled for a pandemic declaration to take place is that the Minister is reasonably satisfied that there is a public health threat. Tell me, do you think the Victorian Bar Association are right um, and should the Greens have advocated for more measures to keep the government to account? So this piece of legislation came about because once the pandemic was upon us and most parliaments and governments across the world had a similar dilemma, which is that they just didn't have enough legislation or specific enough legislation to make the types of decisions they needed to make for as long as they needed to make them, you know, beyond just a couple of weeks within the statutes. And you need 
pandemic-specific laws, which is what this legislation was about, in order to keep people safe. And the, the government were critiqued on uh, a number of areas of that uh, legislation, and we really played a constructive role to try and improve that legislation. We got a fairer fine system introduced, we got much better checks and balances, an internal and an external advisory committee that um, keeps a close eye and monitors the government's decision making. We codified that where the decision making was made as well, in the hands of elected representatives, so that the the Minister for Health um, is ultimately making the decisions, but has to be made based on the advice and in consultation with the Chief Health Officer. So in your introduction, you talked about uh, not being required to um, uh, kind accept, of accept, accept, accept. However, it does require uh, the, the decision makers, the elected representatives, to consult with the Chief Health Officer, and it codifies that in the legislation. Yes, there were um, critiques of it, and there were some opponents of it, but by and large, we had the public health community, we had the legal fraternity, we had community and civil, um, civil society organisations part of that conversation. What about, though, the, I guess, the response by the Victorian Bar Association? They said... Um, following the uh, the passing of the bill in the upper house, they said that the amendments made dealt with a lot of low-lying issues, but not with the big overarching issues regarding accountability. Well, you referenced the threshold question, the reasonable, um, the test of reasonableness, that's kind of that legal framework. That's actually quite a significant test. And the legal fraternity and the legal experts that we were talking to were quite sat were satisfied that that was actually quite a significant test and would be a check and balance. At a state level, particularly in Victoria, compared to the rest of the country, we were hit quite hard with lockdowns and, and learning from home. Um, we saw during this legislation the whole kill the bill movement. We had over mm -hmm. 100,000 people marching down towards Parliament House. Um, do you think there's going to be a considerable... I'll use the word loosely vote of no confidence against against the, the Andrews government and perhaps against the Labor government at a federal level? Look, I think the pandemic has exposed a whole range of things. One, it's exposed essentially the fault lines and made people think about what we should be prioritising as a society, what governments should be prioritising. So I think it's brought into focus for a lot of people what's important and they potentially are going to be making decisions on issues that will swing their vote that they wouldn't have had in previous elections because now they're thinking about the public health system, realising that without that public health system, all the support we had from those incredible public health workers, um, you know, what a precarious position we would have been in if we didn't have that public health system to keep us safe. Have you ever witnessed any type of corruption um, within the Victorian Parliament, um, particularly um, given the fact that we've got alleged the, allegedly the Premier um, now having to stand, stand trial in a corruption hearing. Have, have you witnessed anything personally or heard anything um, that would, would support allegations that are currently happening behind closed doors? So what um, I believe you're referring to is the Premier has been questioned by one of our integrity agencies, mm. IBAC, in the course of a, um, another investigation that is occurring. And that can happen as a matter of course, like the, invest, the investigative bodies can call up different people if they feel like they can provide extra information. And this particularly um, regarding what's happening with the Labor Party and um, accusations of the misuse of public resources. So my understanding is it's in the course of that kind of inquiry. Um, and that does happen from time to time. But in the broader on the broader question of corruption um, and you know the misuse of resources and the distortion of democracy and 
um, integrity, essentially what we're talking about. You know, there are some troubling things that occur um, and I saw it in my time at local government as well and I've seen, um, you know, have had insights into it as well at the state level, particularly um, how close some industries are to government and the type of influence they have on governments. And this happens a lot through political donations. So we haven't had significant political donation reform at the federal level. We've had reform at the state level. It needs to go further, however. Um, the Greens are calling, for example, for a ban on property developers being able to donate to political parties because we know what they do when they donate. They try to wield power over the party they've donated to and get favorable decisions. And you know, the question has to be asked, you know, at what level do we call that corruption and an absolute undermining of the integrity of our decision-making systems. We have the gambling industry who throw heaps of money at these big political parties and then ask for and water down laws and work so hard to water down any laws that are designed to protect the community. For example, reducing the harm of the pokies. You know, every time we get close to reform, the gambling lobby comes out in stealth and in droves and they put so much pressure on those parties receiving those donations. So we need to see really significant reform of donation laws um, and for um, that you know, really to be exposed in terms of the level of influence. So they're very troubling things and we need to keep a really close eye on maintaining integrity in our system, on decision making, cleaning up our donation laws and strengthening our integrity agencies because they are really powerful in keeping a check and balance. Uh, this next question is from one of my friends actually who features on the podcast. Um, and it's about university and TAFE debt, which the Greens has a policy to wipe. Um, so on the Greens policy website, it says, and this is a direct quote, many members of parliament, including the prime minister, went to university when it was free, while now students are being saddled with tens of thousands of dollars in study debt that takes decades to repay, end quote. The Greens have then said that they, they want to fully fund free, free TAFE and university. Um, firstly, I just want to clarify a point here. Does this, um, does this policy also extend to those students who perhaps finished university but that are still paying for their university debt? Um, and second of all, how will you fund free TAFE and free university uh, for both Victorians but also Australians at a, at a federal level too? So we've done this before, Australia's done this before and that reference is correct. There are so many members of parliament who've benefited from free education. And you know, you've got economists after economists who've written for many years that if you invest in education, you invest in your economy for the future, um, let alone the social and um, you know, general positive impacts for a society that has access to affordable education. And there's a reason why governments, you know, decades ago decided that this was a good policy for Australia and so much of our country and society has benefited from it. Um, I went to university not when it was completely free, but you know our hex levels were much more, you know, much lower than what a student at university now has to be saddled with when they leave university. You know, are we marching towards an American-style system? And for anyone who's spoken to anyone who went to university in America and they talk about the debt that they carry and what that does to their life, and it fundamentally changes a number of decisions that they make in their life about whether they can afford a home, whether they can, you know, start a family. They, it'll, it'll be dependent on how much debt they're saddled with, unless, of course, you've come from a very wealthy family and you've had a trust and you can pay, you, your education costs are met. But if we're not careful, we're marching towards that type of system, which means that um, more and more people won't be able to access education because the idea of carrying that debt, being able to furnish that debt, is just absolutely insurmountable and not possible for them. Uh, 
and you know we we know that has flow-on impacts, um, and we know it's often the most marginalised groups who are most impacted by those sort of policies. So I think we should be all very, very troubled with the cost of education in this country, which is why the Greens are saying, let's uh, move towards a policy that will actually increase the number of people who participate in education, because we know that has huge impacts for our whole community and society has really positive impacts for our economy. Our economy actually becomes stronger when you've got an educated population um, and it opens up possibilities for people's lives as well. So, you know, I think it's absolutely possible that we do this. And in terms of where we fund that from, this is a, this is a question of priorities. You know, in Victoria, for example, we have a government that's willing to spend billions of dollars on toll roads, and we've got the same, same at the federal um, government level. They have billions of dollars for their pet projects, but they don't have money for people's education. They don't have money for people's health. They don't suddenly have money for um, affordable housing, and they don't have money for our climate and environment. It's a matter of priorities, and we are able to fund these things if we make them a priority. Adam Bant, the leader of the uh, the Federal Greens Party, says that he wants people to vote Greens so they can be put in the balance of power. Now, the Liberals are saying that a vote for the Greens or a vote for the independent, the independent, specifically the Teal Independents, is um, going to cause a chaotic government. Um, and the Labor Party says any vote you have, you vote for the Greens, is another vote um, or another seat taking away from Labor and allowing the Liberals to stay in. What's your response to both parties on that? Uh with our system in Australia, our voting system in Australia, um, we are all very lucky that our vote can count. So, for example, if you vote um, one for the party that you prefer to, um, you know, you, the, the party that you most align with, but they don't have enough votes to um, win the seat, your the person you put number two on your ballot uh, ticket then gets your preference. And if that person is not hasn't met the threshold, it then moves to the next person. So your vote does count multiple times. So we're really lucky that we have this preferential voting system. And in terms of the composition of our parliaments, look, I was really lucky when I joined, first got elected to local government. Now that's much smaller scale, there were 11 councils elected. But when I got elected, it was the first time I think in the history of that council that there was no single majority in absolute power. It was a mixture of Labor, there was a Liberal elected for the first time, there were two Greens, there were Socialists, there were DLP, there were Independents, like it was a full continuum. And you know, people thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be so hard to find a pathway forward and find consensus on anything. But you know what? Yes, there was, you know, good, um, robust policy discussions and disagreements at times. But actually, that diversity of voices around that table meant that we made much better decisions, in my view, because you had to work really hard to convince people who, you know, weren't just there because um, they, they kind of had to be aligned with you. They had to really evaluate what you were putting forward and think about whether this was in the best interest of the community. You had to work really hard to convince them and convince people who had different um, outlooks that made you better at uh, presenting your ideas and researching your ideas as well. And uh, you know, actually what I found was that really good ideas were making it to the end and we were building consensus around really good ideas because people from all walks of life and different political persuasions were able to offer their views and, you know, finally find a point of agreement that represented the interests of the community. We have multi-party governments right across the world that are doing incredible work, really, really effective and have actually become the norm. You just have to look at um, Europe where multi-party governments are the norm. And in fact, I believe, and a lot of people would say, actually improve democracy and improve outcomes for the community because you've got a diversity of voices around the table making decisions on behalf of the community. It means that those big parties can't just become um, lazy and just 
um, rest on the idea of power itself. They actually have to work on the ideas and the policy and listen and engage with the community. Um, that's only a good thing for democracy. So I think the Greens um, at the on the political stage at both federal and state level and at a local level are transforming politics for the better because if we put ideas, big ideas and visions on the table, those big parties have to actually engage with them because there's a community that have elected us to be there, there's a mandate for it as well. So we find that those parties will then have to think about those ideas because there's people behind those ideas. And we found that in the Victorian Parliament too, they will move, they will change, they will improve their legislation because the Greens are there. So I um, am a big proponent for diversity in politics and having a diversity of parties around the decision-making table. You've already seen what's happened with the Greens in the shared balance of power in the Senate. The Greens were in the balance of power that delivered the best carbon pricing legislation anywhere in the world um, with Killard working with the Greens um, about a decade ago. We got Dental for Kids into Medicare for the very first time. Um, we got the CFC and so many reforms because the Greens were working in partnership with the, with the Labor Party at that time to deliver those outcomes. So that's good for democracy and I hope we see more of that. That's the opposite of instability and ineffectiveness. It was actually very, you know, it was actually a really powerful government that delivered and a a coalition government that delivered really nation-changing reforms. Um, I invite all my political guests on the show to make a 30-second pitch to voters ahead of the election. Um, I would like you to tailor your speech. I'm aware you're a state uh, politician, but I would like you to tailor your speech more to the federal setting, given the fact that we've got a federal election this Saturday. Samantha Ratnam, please make your 30-second pitch to voters. We're at a, a precipice in terms of the future of our planet, um, the health of our environment and whether our climate is in a state that can habit human life for generations to come. Um, we need to all be thinking about that when we go to the ballot box and make our decision. Um, the Greens are the party of vision and ambition and we have proved that we can get things done and we can work in partnership and collaboration, bring different voices to the table to deliver really good policy. We've been talking about housing affordability. You know, there's a whole generation of young people now being completely locked out of the idea of ever being able to afford a safe and secure place to call their own, let alone being able to rent a home with a decent rent that doesn't mean they have to choose between food and rent that week to pay for. To get to a state like that in a country like Australia tells you that governments have let us down. You've got to think about compassion and care in our decision makers and the way that people seeking asylum and refuge have been used as political footballs and they've been denigrated and punished in this country for seeking safety and peace. You know, something my family sought when we tried to leave our country because of war. So think about who you're voting for. Do they have vision to care for this planet? Do they have care and compa compassion to care for people? And are they thinking about the big issues that will mean that we are a stronger, fairer country for decades to come? And that th those people are the Greens. Samantha Ratnam, thank you so much for joining Politics of the People later. Great to be with you, Al. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. To keep up to date on future content, please visit our Instagram page, p underscore plater underscore politics, or our recently launched Twitter page, p underscore plater underscore poll. My name's Alessandro Rossini, and this is Politics with a P Plater.